Hello, I'm Lisa O'Neill, and you're listening to The Matriarchitects. The Matriarchitects podcast and platform highlights changemakers who are building a culture that respects, values, and celebrates women. These individuals and their stories offer an antidote to the hard times we live in, showing us that new ways of seeing and being are not only possible, but are already here. Thanks for joining us. Let's build together. Today's episode of The Matriarchitects features writer, author, performer, mom, wife, and occasional rabble-rouser Adiba Nelson. Adiba spoke about her work to bring inclusivity and representation of children with disabilities to children's literature and television programming about how her burlesque performances and honest personal essays have connected with audiences, giving them permission to own their truths, and about the need for all of us to express outrage at societal mistreatment of Black women and all women of color so that together we can enact cultural change. So, Adiba, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. And... When I was thinking about what to talk about, I was thinking about how many different things that you do, you know, (laughs) like how many hats you wear and everything you do to me seems very creative Uh and also oriented around inclusivity Uh in different ways. But I'm wondering when people ask you who you don't know well, what you do. What, how, like, how do you try to encapsulate that? Well, I usually lead with a joke because I'm just ridiculous that way. So I'd say, oh, you know, I do things. Yeah. (laughs) I do things. (laughs) Yeah. So I usually say, you know, I'm a writer because that's the easiest thing for people to understand. And they say, oh, well, what do you write? Then I say, oh, you know, um, I do personal narrative essays and children's books they're like, oh, okay. But then every now and I just typically just leave it at that. Every now and again, I'll run into someone who recognizes me from being on stage, from doing burlesque. And it's always really interesting because the, the conversation would be like, I feel like I know you. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's Tucson. Everybody knows somebody. No, I've seen you. Do you? And I'm, I'm just waiting for it. And they're like, you? Are you? dance? <laughs> they're like, uh-huh. And they're like, are you the... I'm like, yeah, that's that's me. And then it becomes awkward because I realize at that point that they've seen me half naked. Right. And right. now they're talking to me and I'm just like, oh, okay. So, yeah, I do that too. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> um, I don't really get into the details of what my company is because I feel like people don't fully understand inclusivity from the standpoint of disabilities. Mm-hmm. I think right now when people talk about inclusivity, they're mostly talking about um, people of color and uh, gender issues, which is definitely right. part of the inclusivity. I don't want to say agenda because that just sounds very weaponized. It's all part of what we're working towards, but people don't think about the inclusivity of people with disabilities and the accessibility to life and quality of life 
So it just starts to usually go down a different avenue that I don't always have the time <laughs> to really engage in because I'm so passionate about it. Right. Um, so I don't really go into, you know, the company that I founded, the work that I'm working towards, unless they ask specifically. Like some people have Googled me and they're like, so what's this rocket chair thing? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, well, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. So. So can I ask yes. <laughs> <laughs> about Rocket Chair and yes. uh, the company? And I know that that's also linked into your book, yes. right? Your yes. children's book. Yes. So I um, self-published my children's book and I self-published it under my company called Rocket Chair Productions. And basically what Rocket Chair Productions is doing is working to infiltrate mainstream media uh, with more inclusive children's literature and children's television programming. The book that I wrote, Meet Clarabelle Blue, features a lead girl of color. She's the protagonist that has a disability. And the book is more so about her than about her disability. The overall theme of the book is inclusion. But what you don't see in the book is talk about what her disability is, what it means, it does touch on what special needs means. It it the book is definitely geared more towards littles, I'd say like pre-K to second grade. And when I wrote the book, it was 2012, the term special needs was still widely accepted amongst children. Right now there's battle between special needs and disability. I vacillate. In the book, it does say, you know, well, special needs, what does that mean? And it just says, well, she needs a little bit more help with everyday things, like brushing your teeth and combing your hair and putting on your favorite underwear. And then the kid says, you know, I would bet she can't jump rope or play double dutch. So it goes into all the things that she can do and how she is a kid just like you, really, is the overall theme. She loves to play games. She loves to help out in class. She loves to play jokes on her parents. She's smart. She's funny. She's good at duck, duck, goose. She needs to be tucked in at night, just like any other kid. And I wrote it that way specifically because all of the books that you see that have a character that has special needs or a disability, if you will, in the book, it's rarely the lead character. And they're rarely, or they're usually a a side character. And they take a backseat to their disability. And that was really bothersome. Children with disabilities are children first and they have a disability. They are not their disability. And I know that there are people that are going to disagree with me and I'm okay with that. I choose to look at my child as the individual that she is and let her, let her define her strengths, let her figure it out. And so I wrote it that way because I couldn't find any books. Um, And so now we're also working under rocket chair productions on the animated series because there are literally zero cartoons on the television today that, the characters all have a disability and they are all protagonists in their own little way, but they're also kids just being kids. Mm-hmm. They're sassy. They're silly. They play jokes on each other, um, but they're kind and they're sweet and they're warm and they have relationships with their parents and they're dealing with real life things. Like one child is a foster kid, you know, one child uh, doesn't like to speak his uh, native language in public and he has to work through that. Clarabelle's uh, dad uh, was killed in the line of duty. Not in the line of duty, I'm sorry, in the military. So her mom's a widow. Dealing with that. These are things that a lot of kids, whether they have a disability or not, are going through. You know, right now it's happening, but it's not being talked about. 
Sesame Street does an amazing job of handling really tough topics with kids. Like they just have a home, a new homeless character. Right, which I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. Kudos to Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. But I want to show that, you know, this is also true for kids with disabilities. Mm-hmm. This is also true for kids that have childhood anxiety. This is also true for kids that have dyslexia, who use cochlear implants, who have cerebral palsy, who have autism, ADHD, visible and invisible disabilities. They experience all of it too, but they don't get to see themselves experiencing it. Right. They don't have that representation. Right. And so I'm really working to challenge that. Mm-hmm. That was a very long answer. That's an amazing answer. It makes me think too about, you know, the Mr. Rogers documentary that came out. The one that made me bawl my eyes out. I wept. Yeah. A lot. Sobbed like a baby. A lot. But what I was thinking about is how he modeled compassion and also just the ways in which those early childhood stories, the kind of stories that we experience and that we are given stay with us for the rest of our life. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we're not, if if, I think for both children that are seeing themselves represented and then for children that maybe aren't seeing themselves represented, but also are going to have friends that are going to have that experience, you know, it just seems like it seems actually shocking that that does not exist. Right. It's beyond shocking. And honestly, I, I don't like to pass judgment on the entertainment world because I hope to someday be a part of it. <laughs> right. So if you're out there listening, don't judge me. Don't yeah. hate me. But it's a little bit embarrassing, too, that we still have not done this. Mm-hmm. Why has no one thought about that? Mm-hmm. I, I It boggles my mind. It's really, really frustrating. And so I've kind of committed myself to, you know, before I leave this earth, my child is going to see herself. And the millions of other kids that identify as having a disability, whether visible or not, in this world are going to see themselves. They have to. It is imperative. There is so much that a kid gleans from seeing someone that looks like them on TV. I remember the first time I saw Grace Jones, I didn't necessarily think she was pretty, but I remember being like, she's the same color as me. We're both dark. And she's on TV. And fierce. I didn't know what fierce was when I was <laughs> I remember thinking, yeah. like, I think, I think I thought, like, okay, she's weird, but she's dark, like me. And that was amazing. And I always loved Maria and um, Elaine on Sesame Street, because Maria was Puerto Rican and Elaine was black. And I was like, they're like me. And it kind of gave me a sense of place. Like, I could at least watch one show where I could see people that spoke like me and looked like me. My daughter, she's nine. And whenever she sees anyone on TV uh, in a wheelchair, she immediately points at the TV and points at her chair. And she's like, I have the same thing. And she's nine. But also, um, on Daniel Tiger, which is an offshoot of Mr. Rogers. Yeah, I've seen it. There's a little character, Miss Elena. She's a little brown girl. And she's got Afro puffs. And for the longest time, when Emery was a little girl, she always had Afro puffs. And the first time she saw Miss Elena on TV, the first thing she did was she pointed to Miss Elena's hair and she pointed to her own. She's like, we have the same hairdo. And that was just so powerful. Mm-hmm. 
Like she sees that and she identifies. She's like, mom, I'm on TV. And of course she sees the book, Meet Clarabelle Blue. And she's like, I'm everywhere. Yeah. I'm everywhere. Does she, does she, I don't know. Is that a source of pride for her? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. She's a celebrity in her own mind. Yeah. Um, And then we, so there's an image of Clarabelle Blue where she's in her wheelchair and the rockets are blasting off from the back and she's leaning forward like she's taking off. And we had that stitched into uh, the back of her wheel, uh, seat of her wheelchair. Oh, cool. And so whenever we go somewhere, she leans forward so people can see, like, look, look, that's me back there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a big sense of pride for her. Um, she loves it. And even if that is the only thing I ever do on this planet, which it will not be, but if that's the only thing that I ever do, at least my kid saw herself when no one else was doing it. When publishers said, no one will read that book, no one will pick it up, it's too niche, we can't publish that, it won't sell, the world's not ready, her mom said, well, I'm ready, and we don't have time to wait for the world to be ready, so. Yeah, and so... What is the next step with the with the ser- the animated series? You're working on it now? Yes, we're working on it now. We actually just finished uh, the pilot script. We just finished writing it. We are in, we, my writing partner and I, uh, we are in a contest run by um, Macro and The Blacklist, which are two uh, film production companies out of Hollywood that are committed solely to elevating and producing stories for marginalized communities, whether it's people of color, whether it's the LGBTQ community, whether it's the disabled community, um, anything there, that's what they're pushing. And it's Hollywood heavyweights. And, you know, Lena Waithe is part of this organization. Well, she's part of the judging. Eva Longoria. Uh, Macro is the company that put out uh, Roman J. Esquire, which is the last film uh, Denzel did. They put out Sorry to Bother You and some other really heavy hitting films. Um, and so we are semifinalists with our script in that contest. It's amazing. It's pretty exciting. In the holiest of holies, this will become a 10 to 12 episode series, uh, first season. Ideally, I would love for it to be on PBS Kids because PBS Kids is free. It's public access television. Well, not public access, but you know, public mm-hmm. television. And any kid of any family income can see it. Whereas if it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime, that might be out of a family's budget to afford that. And that family might actually need to see it, but not be able to afford to see it. Accessibility in all the ways. In all the ways. You start small, you change the world with the little ones. Mm -hmm. And I loved what you said before about showing what, like in Meet Clarabelle Blue, showing what she can do. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like the same tropes that start in children-oriented texts also happen in adult oriented ones where people do do have special needs or disability it's the lens is always what they can't do right Right. or what they have to their limitations instead of the wholeness of their humanity right Mm -hmm. exactly and that was a really important part of um not only the book but also the animated series was i wanted to show clarabelle as a whole child a whole child who, you know, sometimes gets sassy with her mom, mm-hmm. is sometimes mean to other kids, um, you know, gets in trouble in class for talking too much. But she's also, you know, she wants people to be nice to each other. And she's going to stick up for her friends, you know, 
there is a whole person. It's not just the disability. And I thought it was really, really important to show that. <laughs> because my kid, you know, Clarabelle is obviously based on my daughter. She is a whole person and a half. <laughs> I mean, my kid is something. And I don't even... I don't even know if she knows that she has a disability. She's like, whatever, I'm here. Let's run it. <laughs> and so I just felt it was really, really important. And in I wrote an early chapter book to follow up the first children's book. And it, that's where we really get to see Clarabelle's personality. We hear her voice coming through. In the first book, it's pretty much being narrated by her mom and telling another kid, you know, this is Clarabelle Blue and she's just like you. And starts off with listing the similarities. She's got two eyes, two feet, a smile just as sweet, hair that's super curled. Wow, I really do know the whole book. <laughs> You've read it I, a few times. Just a, a few. few times. Just I remember few. that line about marmalade. Right? Oh, yes. Uh, the, sardines and marmalade. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, actually, that's one of the funnier things. Um, I actually made that sandwich for my mom when I was a kid. Did you? I took basically everything in our refrigerator and made it into a sandwich. And mm. I was like, I made you lunch. Uh-huh. And my mom, because she loves me, she ate it. Uh-huh. A couple bites. It was awful. There was <laughs> You tried. Yeah. Yeah. There was like jujubes in it. It was awful. Yeah. <laughs> it was awful. But it's to show like she's just a kid, you know, mm. just a kid being a kid doing kid things. And you were recently, you recently... What an Emmy. You're gonna, I took you in the same. I see where this is going. I see it coming. For, for a documentary uh-huh. that you were featured in uh-huh. called The Full Nelson. Uh-huh. That really, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And it's um, because it's about, really about, it takes you through many facets of your life. Right. And I'm wondering if we can go back and talk about burlesque for a minute. Oh, sure. Because I'm curious, you know, you talk about in the documentary about doing it for doing it for other girls and women and also doing it for Emery, for mm-hmm. your daughter. And I'm wondering how you got into it in the first place and mm-hmm. how that factors into your body of work. Okay as a literal body in this case of work, but yeah. So, um, I got into it. Um, there's a local performer. I don't know if she still performs, but her name was Magnolia Tart, and she was doing, um, <clears throat> which is a great name, right? <laughs> I was like, that's clever. Uh, she was doing the showcase for the mentorship that she had just finished. And she's like, I want you to come. I think it'd be great. And I met her actually through the exposed photo shoot that was done with Jess and Leora. Um, Jess Baker, Jess the Baker. militant baker. Yes. And that's how I met uh, Magnolia. And so I went to the showcase and I remember watching all the girls on stage and I was like, this is amazing. Um, now I have a background in dance. I danced for 11 years, but I had to stop due to injury and whatnot. So I, when I went to that show, I had not danced, gosh, since I was like 20 and I was 38, 37, something like that. So it had been a long time since I had danced. And they announced at the show that they were taking, they had a sign-up list for the next mentorship program. And I was like, dance and storytelling. These are two things I live for. I'm going to try this. And um, I didn't even ask my husband. (laughs) He was just my uh, boyfriend at the time. We weren't even engaged yet, I don't think. And I was like, I'm just going to do this because that's what Adiba does. She's just like, F the world, I'm doing it. You had a feeling that yeah. this was something. Yeah. And 
I realized also, so a lot had changed for me. Let me go back a little bit. Um, in 2013, I went to a fashion show in Portland, Oregon. I was working on Portland Fashion Week as an assistant, and I was working um, for a plus-size designer. And so I was watching all the girls get ready, and there's big, beautiful women. And then the fashion show started, and I watched these women just take over this catwalk, just so strong and powerful and fierce. And people were going bananas. And I started crying, like, who the hell cries at a fashion show? This girl right here. Because it was the first time I had seen women that were built like me just own it. And people loved it. And no one said they were fat or they were ugly or anything like that. And it just, it it changed something in me. And then that summer, I did the photo shoot, the exposed photo shoot. And things were already changing kind of in my in my psyche. And then that fall, I went to the burlesque showcase. And I remember signing up for it and then going, okay, I'm like, I'm going to take my clothes off. I'm going to take my clothes off. But then thinking about my daughter, who I have a body that is not um, stereotypically considered beautiful. It's not mainstream beauty, you know. I have cellulite. I have stretch marks. I have a belly that hangs. I have thighs that jiggle and clap like I'm Sammy the Seal when I dance. You know, I have a gap in between my teeth. I have natural hair. Nothing about me says sexy stripper mainstream. Society and mainstream media will look at my body and say, that's not beautiful. That's not, I don't want to say normal, but that's not the normal standard of beauty, you know, because the normal standard of beauty is still, even though it's trying to sway, is still thin, white, typically blonde, typically blue eyes, green eyes, you know, very Anglo-Aryan looking, which I am none of those things. Right. None of those things. Um, and I thought about my daughter who, you know, she has one leg that is shorter than the other. She has an arm that twists, you know, does not cooperate. She has to manipulate it and move it to make it do what she wants it to do. She has um, speech that is sometimes clear and oftentimes not. She uses a wheelchair. Sometimes she uses a walker. She wears shoes that have a lift and wears braces on her ankles. So as she gets older, if this world is still as it is now, she is going to be that body that is not looked at as beautiful or as normal, if you will. And I'm using air quotes, folks. (laughs) (laughs) All the air quotes. Every time you hear normal. (laughs) Um, By mainstream society standards, by mainstream media standards. But we know that children learn what they live. And if she's living with a mother who celebrates her quote unquote, not normal body, not normal appearance, and still thinks it's beautiful and is empowered to say, you will not look away from me. I am here. You cannot ignore all of this in front of you. Maybe some of that will rub off on her. And when she gets to be of age, she will not feel like she's anything less than. And so that was a 
big, big impetus for me and a big push to be like, you have to do this. You are her mother. You set the standard. You set the example. She needs to know that regardless of what anyone says, she is worthy. She is important. She is valued. She is beautiful. And those things aren't just physical, but because that is how the world bases all of those things, she needs to know that as she is in her body right this very minute, short leg, gimp arm, all of that is still okay. It's still beautiful. It's fine. And so that really empowered me to do it. And so she's so powerful, Adiva. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I don't know if I thank you for that, but I'm going to say it anyway. Thanks. <laughs> um, so she's never been to a show, obviously, because Brenda's shows are not for little people. But she has seen me uh, rehearsing. And um, it's funny for it's funny for me to have her watch me perform because some of the acts are overtly sexual, which I don't let her watch those. Right. But the ones that are more funny, she will watch me. And when I'm done, she'll just sit there and she'll look at me and she goes, ooh. And she just, she loves it. I'm like, do you like it? And she's like, yeah. She's going to be a thumbs up. Or if she doesn't like something, she does not hesitate to give me a thumbs down. She's fine with <laughs> she's that. She's honest. Too. She's very honest. <laughs> about her, about her opinions. Yeah. yeah. Like, but I did an act um, a few months back um, where I paid homage to my heritage, my um, Afro-Latin roots. So I started the act in a gold salsa ballroom dress, but like short, fringed, backless, everything's out, giant Afro wig on, because my Afro is not as big as this wig, and I needed it to be epically large. Right. <laughs> um, and I came out to Celia Cruz, um, La Negra Tiene Dumbao, and that literally means that girl's got a big ass. And I do. And I'm proud of it. Um, And then the second half of the song, or the second half of the act, uh, I had switched into a black leotard, and I performed to Lizzo's uh, My Skin, which talks about just the beauty of her brown skin, and loving that, and honoring that. And I feel very strongly about that as well. I'm literally, I kid you not, if you hold it up to me, my arm, you will see the exact same color as a Hershey chocolate bar. And that's kind of amazing. And I just love that. But my skin also has stretch marks. I've had a baby. I've gained and lost weight. So I decided that I was going to rhinestone my stretch marks. Wow. Yeah. Which is not easy. <laughs> Yeah. It's not easy. It takes a lot of stretch marks and a lot of rhinestones. But when I, uh, my reveal was I took off the leotard and I just had my belly with rhinestones on all my stretch marks. That's Um, amazing. I just got chills. (laughs) Yeah. But that was like, because the world will tell you that those things are ugly and hideous. Or they'll come with funny names like my tiger stripes. No. They're not tiger stripes. They're stretch marks. Call it what it is. I got fat. I got skinny. I had a baby. I didn't have a baby. And I had my skin stretched. And I have stretch marks. And that's okay. I'm still beautiful. I don't base my worth, my sense of self-worth on how I look. But I'm also not going to let you look away from how I look. I'm not going to not let you see me and not be confronted with 
all of this and take it in and see that there is a person here. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. You can't look away from that. Yeah. And that makes me think about like how much the beauty industry, how much is about concealing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, in particular, Spanx, which I wore at one point in my life and will never, ever, ever wear again. But, (laughs) right, how much of it is about concealing things that are seen as flaws? And so I love the idea of drawing attention, Mm -hmm. right, in Mm -hmm. this way that you're talking about. Yeah. And And celebrating. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to front, like, I do wear Spanx. Yeah. I do. (laughs) Um, Because sometimes I'm wearing things that... If I don't, like, something's going to fall out. And that's not a, that's not appropriate all the time And either. I didn't mean to spank shame either. I'm sorry <laughs> if I spank shamed. I just remember how they're not the most comfortable things in the world. No. But I hear you. No, I, I do wear them, like, especially if I have, like, a big event. Mm-hmm. And I know there's going to be cameras. And that's probably a total, like, hypocritical thing to say. Like, you're proud of your body, but you're going to put on Spanx. So shoot me. I do. Mm-hmm. I do. But... That's my choice. Right. For me, that's my autonomy. If you don't want to wear Spanx, don't wear the Spanx. Not you personally. But, I got you. you know. Yeah. Um, if you do want to wear them, wear them. It's your body. You can do with it what you will. I think the problem becomes when people are using the Spanx or the no Spanx as a way to gauge your level of worth. That's where, for me, it becomes a problem. Because your worth should never be based on what you look like. Your worth comes from inside. You know, that's why I always tell my friends, like, your soul is beautiful. Therefore, you are beautiful. All of this is just like, you can take this off. You can put it on. You can get in a car accident. You can be burned in a fire. Does that change who you are, though? If you're still beautiful on the inside, aren't you still beautiful? Right. You know? So I think that's that's where it becomes if you take if you put on the Spanx and you feel gorgeous and you take off the Spanx and you feel like a piece of crap that's where the problem lies I hear you yeah what have been the pieces of your writing maybe outside of the the book the Mm -hmm. children's book that have resonated most with people and why do you think Uh, so there is an article that I wrote how stripping made me a better parent um, and then three reasons why I strip hmm. or why I strip is actually what it was called. They both ran on Huffington Post and the response was ridiculous. It got, uh, it made Huffington Post America, obviously, then Japan, Brazil, UK. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like the, it was the why I strip one. It just went everywhere. I think people really, women specifically really resonated with that because of what I said, you know, I strip for the girls that look like me and the girls that don't look like me, but are looking down on mm. the girls that look like me. You know, I strip for the brown girls. I strip for the girl who's told she wasn't enough. The girl whose bro- boyfriend broke up with her because she gained five pounds. Um, I strip for the girl who has a disability and has a body that is no longer deemed, you know, acceptable by society. All these reasons why I strip. Um, I strip for my daughter. I strip for myself, for my sanity. When I was younger, would I have ever imagined myself stripping? No. Mm-hmm. I had a cousin that was a stripper. Um, and she would constantly try to convince me to join her on stage. I was like, girl, no. You will never find me taking my clothes <laughs> off. But I do it for different reasons. 
you know, I don't do it to sustain my livelihood, which it's fine if you do. Right. I have no judgment now. So that one really resonated with a lot of women. There was another article that I wrote and where I, the photo that accompanied it was me with my large Afro wig on and I had on a gold bra top that had fringe on it and black leggings and heels and I was standing there at the legs akimbo by Power Fist. And it was just very affirming, you know, this is who I am. That particular piece, so right before that photo shoot for that photo, I had been driving down the road kind of slowly looking for parking along 4th Avenue, and a man walked past my car, looked at me, and called me the N-word. Wow. Like, I'd never seen it before in my life. Just looked at me and yelled it at me, and then kept walking. And I was like, wow. Uh, okay, well, you have a good day, too. And then I had to go and do this photo shoot. Right after that, you right, were on your way I was to it. On, I was looking for parking to go do that photo shoot. And I could have let that really break me. And I think I talked about it in the article that I could have let that moment just crush me. But it was fuel. It was complete fuel. It was literally that rage against the machine. Like, fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. Mm -hmm. Um, You cannot control this. You cannot break me. You cannot dull my shine. And I think in that article, I talked about, you know, there are going to be people in this world who are going to try to break you. You cannot let them dull your shine. You have to shine bright like a motherfucking diamond, which is literally a quote from that. <laughs> um, but then also there have been articles where I talked about having a food addiction. That one specifically got a lot of attention because it's something we don't talk about. And I just put it out there. I literally told about how I have taken food out of the garbage and eaten it because I couldn't control myself um, and how I have to ruin my food sometimes to make myself stop eating. So I'll be in a very nice restaurant having eaten three quarters of a delicious meal and can barely breathe anymore, but will continue eating. Mm-hmm. So I have to like, it's embarrassing, but like douse it in salt and pour soda on it and literally ruin the food. So it's so disgusting. I won't eat it. And I just admitted all these truths about, this aspect of my life that nobody knew. Nobody close to you knew either. This was the first time sharing it was in this, mm-hmm. this writing. Yeah. It was an article for ravishly. Nobody knew. And, uh, talked about, you know, having bulimia at one point through college, but it freed up a lot of people to mm-hmm. talk about it. I just wrote an article about having a hysterectomy, which was really difficult. I had it over the summer and it was, the mental and emotional accepting of the fact that I will not have another baby. Even if I wanted to, I could not have another baby. And I desperately want to. And it cannot happen. It will not happen. And it's heartbreaking. And it crushes me. And there are certain commercials that I just cannot watch because they send me into a full-on rage. I think the more... I'm not going to call them flaws, just realities of my life Mm -hmm. that I openly and authentically talk about without shame, without fear, like the honesty uh, that I put into my pieces, knowing that, you know, someone's going to get offended because someone gets offended over anything, but I don't care. This is my reality. I'm not a unicorn. So if I'm experiencing this, I know someone else is. I know it. 
I refuse to believe that I'm the only person who sometimes wishes they don't have children. That's a reality. Mm-hmm. I don't know a single mom who has not even for a fleeting second has not stopped and thought, God, I wonder what my life would be like if I didn't have these kids. Hmm. I wonder what what I would be doing right now if I had chosen to, you know, not have a baby. Even if it's like a, a half a millisecond of a thought, mm-hmm. you've had it. And mm-hmm. if you say you don't, you're lying. I don't, I, right. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And because I'm willing to, like, what's that line from that movie Tombstone? Be your huckleberry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'm willing to be the huckleberry, I'll take the fall. I don't care. This is life. And we're going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. The ugly, the good, the bad, all of it. I think that really resonates with women specifically because we're told all the things we're not supposed to talk about. Things we're not supposed to say. You're not supposed to tell your weight. You're not supposed to tell your age. You're not supposed to admit if, you know, you color your hair or you wear a weave. All these things that you're not supposed to say. And who who gets to put that limitation, you know? Who gets to tell you how you can and cannot use your voice? Where is that written that women have to follow these rules of acceptability? I just don't ascribe to that. Well, it seems like, I mean, I feel like that is also permission, right? Yeah. For other, for other women. Yes. It's like, here, Yes, I did this. This is also possible for you. Right. 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 Like, and I didn't die. Right. I'm still I didn't, here. And I, like, lightning did not come down and strike the afro out of my head. Yeah. I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think about, too... The things, the pieces that I've written that have felt the most vulnerable to me, 100% of the time are the ones that people respond to. And it's what you're talking about, I think. It's that all we want is to be seen and understood. And when someone has that experience and is vulnerable, I think it's it's everything. In terms of womanism, like the importance of intersectionality in that. Yes. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Well, you don't acknowledge the intersectionality of womanism. You are basically not allowing a woman to be a full human being. You're saying you are just this one thing. But I'm not just a woman. I don't just check the woman box. I also check the parent box. I check the African-American box or black box. I check the Latin box. I check the disabled box because even though I don't look it and I still run around in heels against my doctor's orders, I have pretty bad arthritis mm-hmm. and it sucks. Right. Um, I check the parent of a stepchild with mental illness box. I check the, I don't even call myself a Christian. I call myself a Jesusist, but all these other boxes. But if you're going to say you are only a woman, well, then are you going to address the issues that affect the rest of my life too? Mm -hmm. Because if you're not, then you're not doing me any favors. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the whole human being. And when you acknowledge that intersectionality is a thing, that's when you can really start to do some real good. I did want to talk a little bit about the policing and politicizing of black women's hair. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, Because as you see, like right now, well, y'all can't see, but Lisa can see. Like right now, I have my hair in its natural state Mm -hmm. and it's Afro. Uh, My hair is kinky. It's thick. The curl pattern is as tight as you can possibly get. And at one point in time, that was definitely considered not professional. Hmm. It was considered um, a political statement to wear your hair in an Afro. 
uh, it was considered violent <laughs> to wear your hair in an afro. But then when you see white girls don't get mad at me, I love you. Uh, <laughs> white girls on the cover of magazines wearing their hair in a quote unquote fro, and it's the hot new look. And it's not politicized. It's not violent. It's not, um, it's not anything that our natural hair as it grows out of its head has been called. Um, and it's trendy and it's lovely and it's fashionable. This is also leading into the, the idea of appropriation. Cause that's a conversation that I have with a lot of friends, the yeah. idea of appropriation. I may be a singular voice on this. I don't think a lot of, um, women of color see this the way I do, but maybe they do. I don't necessarily have an issue with, uh, white women in general wearing cornrows. Although it it does become a little bit problematic when you're going to wear the hairstyle but not incur any of the issues mm-hmm. that we have to incur. That is a little bit problematic. But on the surface, like it's hair, do what you want to do. But when you get down to the political parts of it, that's where the problem lies. My problem around appropriation in this idea is when certain groups of people are vilified mm-hmm. for just living their life as they live their life and another group comes along and does it and they're glorified for doing it and then it becomes the trend and everyone's doing it that's where i have the problem with appropriation mm-hmm. and that, not giving credit not not giving credit and not acknowledging the double standard mm-hmm. not acknowledging the hypocrisy mm-hmm. not pulling up your sister beside you and saying if I can wear my hair like this, she can wear her hair like this. And it's not a problem. If I don't have to be sent home from work, neither does she. If Susie wants to w- get her hair braided in Mexico and go to class the next day, then Deandra, mm-hmm. just for a name, you know, can wear her hair in braids and not sent home from school the next day. Mm-hmm. Because her mom did her hair in her apartment and Susie went to Mexico for it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. let's talk about that kind of privilege. Mm-hmm. And I wish that there wasn't this policing of black women's anything, women of color's anything. I wish we were just allowed to be angry because, damn it, we have every reason to be angry. Right. You know, black women, Hispanic women, Asian women, we all have a reason. White women have a reason to be angry. 54% of y'all voted that president in, so let's be angry about that too, white girls. Right. But women of color are the ones that are vilified for being angry. We're not allowed access to our emotions. We're not allowed equality in our emotions. We're not given autonomy in our emotions. Um, and that's revealed in the medical field, too, and uh, the way that Black women's pain is discarded and the mortality rate of Black mothers because of because of that very problem, right? Uh, my mom's doctor, when she was in the hospital, tried to tell me that she was making it up, that she didn't really have a headache and she was looking for medicine. Oh my God. Uh huh. It took everything I had (laughs) to not lose my shit entirely in that wing of the hospital. Mm -hmm. I made it very clear that that was not the case and that I wanted to speak to his supervisor immediately. But to have the audacity to look at me and tell me that my mother was making it up. No, you can't make that up. You can't make up writhing in pain. You can't make up hallucinations. No. And he felt he was totally justified in saying that to me. Wow. So yeah, that that shit's real. Um, We're not 
allowed the space and the room to be full, whole human beings. And that's a problem. And we shouldn't be the only ones that are angry about it. You know, we shouldn't be the only ones who are speaking up for ourselves. This should be a collective outrage. That's a huge, huge problem. That makes me think of, I'm forgetting her name right now, but that woman who went to go get, she went to a, a office, government office. Oh, and they wrestled her baby in her hands. Yes. Oh. Right? And she's just trying, Ooh. she's trying to figure out how, I think it was for childcare. Childcare. She needed right? a voucher. She needed a voucher for childcare. So that she could go to a job interview. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, my blood was boiling. Mm-hmm. It just harkened back to the woman who was arrested for leaving her two babies in the car while she went to a job interview where she could see them mm-hmm. and was arrested for child neglect. But a woman drives down the street with her baby on the roof of her car and gets her kid back. Mm-hmm. No jail time. No probation. Mm-hmm. What, what is that? Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. What? Why is not every single woman on this planet raging about that? Mm-hmm. That makes no sense. Mm-hmm. None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to collectively rage that a puppy gets kicked, collectively rage when a black woman gets kicked, mm-hmm. collectively rage when Hispanic women are being tear gassed at the border, collectively rage when Asian women are being stereotyped and typecast as engineers or as... um grocery workers on television Mm -hmm. collectively rage you don't get to pick and choose Mm -hmm. sorry end scene no (laughs) i think that's a great yeah you don't get to pick and choose no Mm -hmm. no we're in this together or we're not and we need to be in this together because we need to take better care of one another right Mm -hmm. don't come coming to me to save your ass yeah you ain't trying to save mine like i'm not trying to be petty but petty Mm -hmm. hashtag petty hashtag Hashtag petty petty betty you can call me that Also, I'm tired of men looking to women to save the world. Okay, that's it. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> yeah. We can't save the world. Like, I mean, we can, obviously, because we're doing it. <laughs> but I'm tired of men taking a backseat and expecting us to do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Just because we can doesn't mean that we need to do it all on our own. Yep. Don't call yourself a feminist if you ain't trying to do that shit, too. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. Who is... Who's a woman or who are some women that are inspiring you right now? Uh, well, first and foremost, Beyonce. Okay. <laughs> yes. I, I love her. Like, there's not a single thing I don't love about that woman. She's just such a force. And I watch her documentary whenever I need to get motivated to get my shit together and, like, just do the damn thing. There is um, a writer, a friend of mine, her name is Deneen Milner, and I have been a fan of her since I was a tw- in my 20s, and then I found out shortly after I had my daughter, and I was writing my postpartum blog, which basically saved my life, that she was reading my blog. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and we actually ended up becoming friends, and I've watched her grow and just skyrocket since you know, I first started reading her, and I've just kind of been just watching how she does things watching how she moves through the world, how she lines things up for herself. She's a big motivating force for me. My business mentor, um, Leora, I adore her. She just has this this understanding and this way of moving through spaces inclusively, but also standing her ground, not letting anyone dissuade her because she's a woman. And without being sappy, my mom. In 2015, my mom had a stroke. 
Um, and she was in the hospital for two weeks and in assisted living for two weeks to regain everything. She had to learn how to walk again. She had to learn how to feed herself. Everything. She couldn't go back to work. She had to go on disability. And my mom has always been hella independent. Like, she basically raised me with this whole mantra of don't wait for someone else to do for you what you can do for yourself. And I've watched her start her life over. She went back to school. Um, after having worked, um, in the prison system, uh, as a sergeant and occupational health uh, tech for almost 20 years, um, went back to school, decided she wanted to be an artist and has just unlocked this insane talent. Wow. Um, that neither one of us knew was like down in there. Just waiting. Just waiting. And she's, you know, made friends again and she goes out and she gets invited places. And I've just really seen her like the woman is unstoppable. She does not stay down. She doesn't wallow in the muck and the mire. I think I get a lot of that I have in me from her. But just watching how she has dedicated herself to not stopping and not letting something so life altering as a stroke keep her down. And also, without sounding sappy, my daughter, and I'm not going to say she's my hero, because I hate when people say that. Like, how can a six-year-old be your hero? Come on now. But I will say that I am learning to be less judgmental of other people, because my daughter, like, she literally loves everyone. She will walk past homeless people on the street, and she's like, let's give dap, dude. Um, She's high-fiving everyone. You know, she's just so gregarious and generous with her affection and she takes people as they come you don't have to be anything or anyone she just loves you and she's really she's really really gracious with her friends and they they see that in her and uh i could definitely stand to be more gracious in life we all could. <laughs> One more time, Lisa. <laughs> yes, we could. Um, so I'm trying to take pages out of her book and out of my mom's book. Well, this was so wonderful. <laughs> thank you. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. I want to thank Adiba Nelson for joining me today on this episode of The Matriarchitects. Please see the show notes for links to Adiba's work and the Emmy Award-winning documentary she is featured in, The Full Nelson. Thanks also to songwriter Jillian Bissett, whose voice you hear at the beginning and end of our show. I'm Lisa O'Neill. Thanks so much for joining us and listening to The Matriarchitects. You can subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your listening platform, and you can support the project by sharing this episode, leaving a review, or finding the Matriarchitects on Patreon. Let's continue to build a world where people of all genders can live their fullest, most purposeful lives. See you next time.